You're listening to FabRadioInternational.com. My name is Ed Fortune. I'm here with Del, and we're talking about books because you're listening to the Bookworm. This is Starburst's Bookworm podcast. It's also Fab Radio International's the Bookworm Radio Show because we like having two slightly different identities just to confuse you when you're googling for us. Hey, hi. <laughs> Hello. So, um, yes, oh, you can Google us and you can find us on the internet. So we are on pubradiointernational.com, on stopusmagazine.com. We're also on Tumblr as Radio Bookworm, Twitter as Radio Bookworm, everything else as Radio Bookworm. I will be reviewing on this show a book called The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, the mostly true story of the first computer. Del? I'm going to be reviewing The First 15 Lives of Harry August by Claire North. Just that is a book, I'm not reviewing a person. Just, just the first fifteen lives. Just the first fifteen. Forget, forget the rest of them. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we have a interview with Gabriel Conroy coming up on the show as well. Um, if you know who a ghost hunter John Sinclair is, you'll be very excited. But most of you have no clue what I'm talking about, so get very excited. <laughs> coming up next, we will be doing some book news. Across the world, 24 hours a day. This is Vancouverian International. So the first bit of kind of book news we were going to discuss with you today. Um, this week, the first official image of Jared Leto as the Joker has been released from um, film that I think comes out this year, maybe. Um, it's uh, from the Suicide Squad. Um, it's already dividing people that I've seen on my Facebook feed um, but I think that it seems to be two, well actually three types of people who are kind of weighing in. I've got predominantly female friends but not necessarily all female friends just going pretty, pretty man, pretty and then my friends who are kind of Batman fans are either saying yes or they're saying no. Um, I personally think it looks really interesting. I think the image is almost... um, is almost an exact replica of the most famous image from The Killing Joke, um, which is an Alan Moore Batman story. Um, even, like, the ha-ha-ha tattoos he's got on him are the kind of a, a really similar font, the framing of the hands on his face. He looks like a derelict modern version of that, like, blacked-out teeth and hollow. I like New Joker. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think it looks interesting. He jo- Joker should not always be a clown. Um, the, the, the crazy almost alternative model crazy crazy as you say derelict Mm. a lost madman who is coming for you and you know he's not got the training that Batman has he's not got the wealth that Batman has he's just got no limits yeah Uh, he's just completely crazy and this is the thing where people go well hang on how can Batman who's got all this, this money yes but Batman's controlled this guy's you know man unlimited and a monster and he looks Terrifying, yeah, and also quite pretty. Which, it like doesn't, a tiger. yeah, it doesn't look like Jared Leto though. I don't think. Like, if, like I was kind of looking at it, I was like, the eyes maybe, but I think he's he's an interesting actor in that he doesn't mind not being pretty, and he does actually a lot of his films. It, it doesn't necessarily look like the same man in them. I'm really interested. Um, I know a lot of people. Um, are not so much because they think like the Dark Knight is now like their ultimate Joker. I'm going to be really unpopular saying this, but I don't actually agree. Don't get me wrong. I think Heath Ledger's performance was fantastic. Um, I just kind of, I don't think that story. It didn't have to be the Joker. 
it could have been any villain for, for me um, there are lots of different types and modes of Joker I mm. like the Caesar Romero Joker I would love to see a version of the Caesar Romero Joker where he's just a horrible monster at the same time because mm. there was something very sinister about that man with his moustache you know painting over his moustache and his face just looked wrong and he was always laughing while he was doing comedy villain things because it was 1966 Batman <gasps> but could you imagine him in like a darker movie yeah it would be, you know, it would just the juxtaposition would just be like, good. It'd be horrific. But you see, these days, every time someone mentions the Killing Joke to me, I think, ah, oh, that's the one where Batman kills the Joker. And if you're like, what? Read it again. It's the yeah. one where Batman kills the Joker. Shall we? Read shall, it again. Shall we? Move, shall we move on? Oh yeah. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking. So uh, the Green Party have caused confusion on the copyright message. Um, essentially, uh, various various people on the, the social medias have gone. Look, look, the Greens—they've got a terrible policy when it comes to. Um, we should point. We should point out for international listeners who may not be aware that Britain has a general election in two weeks' time, mm. and the Green Party are standing in in a lot of constituencies this time. Five hundred, not just short of six hundred, I think. But to be fair, I think we could give that message to a lot of the Brits as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey, kids, vote. Yeah. Uh, the Green Party are not the biggest party in the UK, if you're not from the UK. They are one of the minority parties. I think they've got one seat out of 600. They've got one seat, which is um, Hove, I believe. Um, Caroline, Caroline Lucas, who was MP of the Year 2014. Um, they have uh, popular support of about 5%, according to which poll you read. Uh, bear in mind, people lie to pollsters. They do indeed. But one of the things, a, a lot of people of the liberal persuasion have quite liked their, their policies that seem to be fairly supportive of the creative arts. And their response to seeing this saying, oh, oh, only 14 years. Right, it's a really badly written web page. It's not their ra- latest web page. It's really badly written. And their latest web page has a piece of copyright stuff where it's like, we should talk about copyright. That's also really badly written. Uh, but it's literally one sentence, and what we should say is that they're going to talk about it. They're not putting any arbitrary limits on it right now, um, and they are at least willing to engage in the conversation. The copyright in the UK is in a mess. Everything has different limits. Um, it's different for play, it's different for book, it's different for music, it's different for recorded music, it's to live music, it's different if whether you're the artist or the publisher or the person who wrote it. Um, I don't even know well. what the situation is for TV and film. Uh, what's the situation with YouTube? How long does the copyright last on that? Whose copyright is it? Has anybody asked these questions? I think not. And I think we're in a mess as well when it comes to copyright. I mean, we, we are... You know, it's really important for your for your livelihood if you're a creative person for the copyright rules to work. And I think the the first of what the Greens are trying to say from reading their, their manifesto is we'd quite like small level creatives to have the the opportunity to create more interested and creative stuff. This is our suggestion. Unfortunately, we've done that without having any consultation with the creative community. And right now, two weeks before an election, is a terrible time to start asking those questions. Is it? Well, yes, it's a terrible time to stop making policy. Um, I think they're getting more coverage they are. than I've seen them get, and people are talking. People who wouldn't normally even put, put them on the table, not in this way, they are putting them on the table. They're talking about them. So Two weeks before the election, and they're currently one of the names that people are talking about more than the other parties. That's see, I think that's quite clever. I, I think I think this was not a plan. I don't think they intended for this to happen at all. No um, such thing as bad press. But there is no mm. such thing as bad press. I think. But, but, but the, the problem is that the lie has gone around the world before the truth has put its pants on. Yeah. Um, Terry Pratchett cool. Hey. Um, <laughs> but yes, the the there's a, the a lot lots of people have gone. Oh, it's like well, no, actually, what they're saying. Well, two things. Firstly, what they say. They're not they're not saying they're going to take all your copyright away from you. And also, they're not getting into power. They're starting the conversation. Yeah, that, that's the important thing that I think a lot of people fail to realise about manifestos is it's a it's a best case scenario if we suddenly swept the entire thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think what every political party needs to start to understand is that we are probably looking at coalitions in the next ten to fifteen years, if not longer. Yeah. Um, and personally, I think that's a very good idea. If, if sweeping very quickly into politics, I'd much rather see a wish list than a manifesto. Yeah. 100% we definitely will do this if we get a whiff of power right the way down to really really like this but we'd also like a magical sparkling pony 
Yeah. As we've mentioned politics and as we are in a general election uh, period, we should mention that there are other political parties available who you can vote for. It's on our website, it's on our kids, go check it out. Yeah. Yes, it's up to you to be responsible for your own vote. Moving on, mm-hmm. Felicia Day is uh, writing a memoir. She's like 12. What? Um, S- Sphere has signed Felicia Day to write, to write a, a memoir. Um, if you don't know who Felicia Day is, then well, okay. Um, then you've never watched any. Disturb- disturbingly, she's only three and a half years ever. younger than you are. Really? Really? Oh my goodness! I've wasted my life. But that means you could write a memoir. That's ah, true. The precedent has been set. <laughs> I could write a memoir. It would be awesome, and also I'd get sued. She is the girl with red hair that you have seen in every sci-fi or supernatural kind of television program. Mm. I quite like her in Supernatural, actually. I like that character in Supernatural. She's I like her in most things. She's in a really terrible film about werewolf hunting, but she's still watchable in it. Yeah, she is very, very watchable. She's great on the Guild. Um, she started in Buffy, didn't she? She yeah. was one of the initiates um, from the later series where Buffy started finding who the next set of Slayers were potentially going to be. She's Not a, initiates, potentials. She's That's a potential it. Slayer. That's it. And um, my memory of that character is when she's playing D and D. It's the <laughs> night before the big fight, and she's the one who actually knows the rules. And they're playing D and D. Oh, you remember her because of tabletop gaming? Ah, oh. yes. Oh, she's famous for tabletop gaming. But yes, she's got a memoir coming out. Uh, what else is in the news? Not a heck of a lot, to be honest. Comic book artists are suing Marvel over the Iron Man body armor. Um, this, to be honest, this looks like a nuisance thing to me. It really is. Uh, is this a copyright issue? Yeah, I don't know. It is indeed a copyright issue. They've gone uh, 14 years ago. Our comic book, uh, Redix, had a highly detailed mechanized suits of art body armor, which is the same as you get an Iron Man. I think they're up for a surprise when they look at Iron Man armor from the 90s. There's, there's entire armor books full mm. of the designs. Um, I don't think you invented Iron Man, lads. But good luck. Research has not been researched. Good luck with your, your, your nuisance lawsuit, if it is indeed a nuisance lawsuit. Good luck with your lawsuit in general. Uh, he said, rapidly backing away from any potential whoop, 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 whoop. Well, uh, if, if it's no win, no fee, then there's nothing to lose, lads. <laughs> it's like the thing with the muggles. Um, producer Al is butting their desk uh, for reasons that we cannot explain for legal reasons in fact. so um, I think we're going to get very quickly out of the news probably permanently <laughs> and move on so I'm going to review a book after some short messages fabradiointernational.com Called The Fulling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, the mostly true story of the first computer by Sidney Padua. So, what's it about? Well, it's about. I keep making the joke, well, it's about 600 pages long. It's an illustrated graphic novel style um, account of Lovelace, Ada, Ada Lovelace, and Charles Babbage. Who are they? Well, in the real world, Ada Lovelace was the son, or the son, the daughter of Byron. Or one of the few Byron babies, um, and it, it, it's Ada's young man was conditioned away from dangerous poetical proclivities and trained from the earliest years to control the chaotic forces lurking within her hereditary. Um, we we desire certainty, not uncertainty. Science, not art. To which young Ada Lovelace goes, but what are these imaginary numbers? We do not talk about imaginary numbers. And actually, right here, okay, I'll explain the book itself. The book itself is an illustrated book with lots of notes. The first um, 10% of it is a completely accurate, well, not completely accurate, but as yeah. fearful as possible, explanation of who these two Victorian mathematicians were. Um, Lovelace and Babbage were friends in the real world, and Babbage was responsible for designing the first ever computer. He designed the uh, difference engine. He also uh, devised uh, the the analytical engine. Um, These two calculating machines um, were the the forerunners of computers, the the design for computers. Babbage kind of messed it up 
in the sense that he was more interested in the the, the science and the exploration of the whole thing. And the British government turned around and said, here is enough money to build two locomotives. Build this, a machine that will create tables, and we can use these tables for navigation and other useful things. In being, being a traditional scientist with all sorts of privileges and large amounts of money, but actually, you know, apart from that, he had, he had loads of cash, loads of time, loads of resources, but also had no way of actually talking to people. He kind of he wasn't the best project manager, shall we say? So the different engine never actually got made. Ed Lovelace was the the child of a famous anarchist, essentially a famous poet, a famous wild person. So she was pushed into something that was more ordered, and it was felt that maths would be the more ordered thing. It would be the more sensible and sane thing. But being someone who was incredibly intelligent and also naturally creative, she went off on wild mathematical flights of fancy. And between them, they pretty much came up with modern computing. So that's what happened in the real world. Um, It didn't go anywhere because terrible project management, and there's lots of different reasons as well, But the two were friends, there's lots of letters between the pair of them, they got on with each other, Um, he describes her as a, a, Babbage Babbage was an old man, describes her as a kind of angel of mathematics. And, you know, at this point the the book stops, because, you know, in the real world it was a bit boring, this marvellous machine was not invented. And then suddenly, the multiverse appears, which is the rest of the book, where we tell a series of alternate reality stories about Babbage and about Lovelace. The artwork is amazing. They just look so cute. And together, together, the thrilling adventures of Babbage and Lovelace, where they have thrilling adventures and fight crime! Though their definition of crime is a bit idiosyncratic. Babbage considers that, you know, street music is probably a crime, and Lovelace does not like poetry. <laughs> it's not a fan. It's it, well, yeah, not a fan of her father. No. To, to, to be honest, less people should be. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Oh, sorry, fewer people fewer should be. People should be. Byron is yes, he is overrated. But anyway, this is very cartoony, very beautifully done. All the characters have huge eyes. Queen Victoria is so cute, uh, and she has an enormous dress. And there's this wonderful bit where she goes, "Take over the world!" And her dress like takes over the entire planet. It's very, very silly, but at the same time, what Sidney Padua has done is he's done extensive research, so each page has extensive notes as to where he's drawn his inspiration from. So one of the characters, that he doesn't invent any characters, he takes characters from history and adds them on top. So Isambard Kingdom Brunel turns up. Yay! Um... And and you know he and he is Brunel, and he's running around being Brunel and being very loud, which is what he was like in the real world. As far as you know, history history records that he was a big, bald as brass, larger than life character, and he's a character who helps them build massive machines and is incredibly silly. There's there's a there's an entire short story about the economic mechanism. Now this is the economic mechanism in the Victorian period. Weirdly, what happened back then? was uh, they gave too much control to the banks and we had a, a massive collapse of, of, of money due to the fact that we had to bail out the banks at the time. Luckily, we've learned from history. <laughs> Anywho. It, it, it's multiverse. It's, it's, full, it's full of these little gags and these little kind of sharp comments, but it's also full of explanations as to how, you know, as, as to how computers came about and the history of machinery there's a wonderful bit where they get attacked by computers so they've got the difference engine because in this multiverse the difference engine is this huge machine that takes part of London <laughs> and, then, and then computers attack them and they're like computers, computers are attacking the engine and then there's a little footnote where you go yeah are you confused? I'm confused no computers of course were what we used to call real people whose job it was to compute mathematical tables and do all the mathematical donkey work did not know that if you if you had to build a sign table for you know because you're an architect and you need a sign table you'd get someone who would sit down and do all the donkey work and create these tables they are called computers they actually in the real world did object to the concept of a difference engine being built that's not why the difference engine wasn't built the reason the difference engine wasn't built is because babbage 
was pretty much a really good scientist and a terrible project manager and hadn't a clue what he was doing, so he got into a big fight with the people who were actually building it. That's such a wonderful piece of trivia, though. Well done, that book. Oh, it's full of these tiny, tiny bits of trivia and very, very silly ideas. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful bit where they're, they're talking about trying to trans- translate text into into a thing that computers can understand, hmm. which is pointless because there's only one difference engine in this setting. Um <laughs> But it leads to some marvellous, marvellous gags and the fact that also Babbage had a rivalry with the various writers and creators and all the rest of it. So it's just it's just marvellous all the way through. Um, he plays with the mathematics a lot. He plays with the characters an awful lot. Um, the, there's a... <laughs> there's, I sorry, I, 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 keep, I keep flipping through this and looking at things. So, nonsense. The most advanced ma- ma- mathematicians accept unquantified symbols in their realm. In any event... I'm a historical figure and therefore under the jurisdiction of the humanities. Oh, the humanities! Oh, dear. And, and so on. Uh, the, there is indeed an Alice in Wonderland take with, with Lovelace running around. Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful little, just a very short gag where it, it purports that a Lovelace might have been um, the lady, uh, the, the person from uh, Pollock. Um, obviously, probably, almost certainly not. But if you if you know idea what I'm talking about, I'm rapidly rippling through the but the story of Kublai Khan. Coleridge wrote a story called Kublai Khan, and halfway through, um, his his creating Kublai Khan, someone knocked on his door and broke his concentration, and he blames it on the person of from Pollock, um, and that's that's why you know, Kublai Khan kind of finishes badly. Pollock is mental. Coleridge makes a lot of sense if you've been to Pollock. It's mental. It's just it's just the steepest hill in the world, and yet they still have a carnival. <laughs> but yes, in, in this, uh, Lovelace turns up simply to to you know to to, to confuse and distract Coleridge because she hates poets. <laughs> you're, you're mentioning the anti poetry thing quite a bit because uh, it's a running gag. Uh, Babbage's hatred of uh, street musicians is also a running gag all the way through. It. So, is it any good? It's marvelous. Um, is it within our wheelhouse? Is it genre? Of course it is. It's quintessential steampunk. I cannot think of a single steampunk world that I have not seen that doesn't have Lovelace and Babbage as their their basic characters. You know, as their their, their base design and um, built into the setting. They are like the archetypal crazy kind of creators. <laughs> like... We've invented computers and they're huge. Uh, you do kind of wonder what the world would be like had they. Had they succeeded, had there been you know a, a third person in there who was mm. like, right, I'm going to talk to Mr. Babbage and I'm going to talk to the engineers and I'm going to make sure that this project gets managed. All it, you know, if, if Prince Two qualification had had been invented <laughs> back then, the world would be very different. But yes, so who's it by? Where's it from? It's uh, the Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage. It's by Sydney Padua. It is, he said, flipping through the marvellous illustrations. It's a, a, it's an imprint of Penguin Books. It's particular books. It's a particular book. Okay. Um, from a penguin. So that would be Random Penguin, of course. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think you would really enjoy it. If you're a fan of steam trains, if you're a fan of steampunk, if you're a fan of alternate histories or the Victorian era, if you're a maths nerd or a mm. computing nerd, I think you'll have a lot of fun. If you like comic books in general and you don't feel that comic books always have to have capes on them, and then you'll enjoy it immensely. It's a great amount of fun. the world 24 hours a day this is fab radio international so uh, i was uh, very lucky in the sense that i got to talk to gabriel conroy who is creating the well he's not creating he's reimagining and rebooting the john sinclair books if you don't know who the john sinclair books they're these marvelous i didn't know until very recently they're these marvelous german ghost hunter stories where essentially a kind of james bond but think the 60s the saint style james bond hunts demons and vampires 
and it's so entrenched in the period that it needed to be rebooted because it was a little bit dodgy in places. So they've clearly rebooted it, but oh my goodness, is it fun. So enjoy. This is Fab Radio International. Gabriel Conroy, welcome to the bookworm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ed. It's a pleasure to to be invited. I'm thrilled to be here. And let me just say that um, I used to read Starburst um, when I was growing up, trying to learn English with it. So now now I'm with you guys. It's it's a thrill. What can you tell us about your latest project? Well, my latest work is called John Sinclair. It is a based on a long-running German horror pulp series. And what you need to I think know and understand is that Germany is one of the the few countries that still has a very vibrant living pulp tradition like the United States used to have in the 30s and 40s. Um, The publisher I work with on these e-books and audio dramas called Bastai uh, got started after the war and sort of put entertaining, thrilling, suspense, spy, crime and horror stories into the hands of readers on a weekly basis. And one of these series, John Sinclair, uh, started in 1973 and is still published every week. Every week there's a new John Sinclair in Germany. They've sold over 25 million of those, you know, in the course of more than 40 years. And uh, now they'd like to try it in the English language market. So I was contacted by Bastai um, and asked to take a look and take a crack at it and see if I could get involved with the English language adaptation of John Sinclair. And John Sinclair is a Scotland Yard DCI who is battling supernatural forces. The original series was written by a man with a nom de plume of Jason Dark, and I think he was very much inspired by the TV show The Persuaders. Do you know The Persuaders? Oh, we're big fans. It's a classic piece of telefantasy. So it's it's very much, you know, um, Denny Wilde and Pratt Sinclair, Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. So it's the idea is that it's a spy. It's sort of a little bit of James Bond spy genre. It's a lot of globe-trotting adventure, but it has a real X-Files touch where every week, every episode, there's a supernatural menace to be to be dealt with and to be conquered. And these stories, as I've mentioned, are more than 40 years old, so they're very dated. And what we're doing is really, in, a, in our small, humble way, not unlike what Warner Brother has done with their Batman uh, property, where they went to Christopher Nolan and they said, do whatever you want with it. And so I had the same diktat and the same freedom i was charged with bringing this slightly dusty old 70s euro pulp show and pulp series into the modern age and keeping true to its roots and the adventure and the excitement and the scares of it but at the same time trying to make it a little more present day and contemporary and and tangible for modern audiences so hang on, this is a, a classic uh, character. How do you reboot something like that? Well, it's actually precisely that. The backstory has been established over decades, and we are starting with issue one. We're literally rebooting the original 1973 issue one of John Sinclair, and we're going in semi-chronological order. And that was a time when the mythology of the later universe hadn't been quite etched out yet. So... We really have the opportunity in many ways to to start from scratch. We're not contradicting any of the existing mythology, um, but we don't have to concern ourselves with it quite so much. It starts to get complicated several hundreds issues in, so we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, with regards to the characters, um, there's sort of an established canon of major characters that we're by and large sticking to. I, occasionally, I have discussions with the publisher, with Bastai, um, to see if I can do a new take, if I can change a little something in a character. By and large, they've been very agreeable. And I should really say, you know, hats off to the folks at Bastai because they're not acting like a corporate entity at all. It's really like working with a creative community. They're incredibly collaborative, incredibly kind and supportive of what I do. And essentially, I get the old stories and I try to sift through them to find what is it that makes a story work is it an image is it a violent scene is it a theme is it an emotional subtext and if a story works reasonably well i don't change it too much but in many cases 
later on in the series, in the in sort of episode five and six of our of season one, I really had to toss a lot of the original story out and completely invent it from scratch and just sort of stick to major themes. And the publisher was fine with that. They said, just go with it. You just explore new boundaries, go where you want to go. And I think and I'm hopeful that the fans of the original are going to take kindly to it, that they're going to understand that this is a this is a reboot. There's going to be some liberties taken, but we're really trying to stay very true to the spirit of the thing. And the spirit is adventure and and, and hopefully scare the crap out of you. It's meant to be bloody scary. So how would you pitch it to someone who's never heard of Ghost Jagger John Sinclair before? I would say, imagine if James Bond was not battling his Bondian supervillains. Imagine if James Bond was taking on zombie hordes and vampires and demon over overlords. It really is, you know, modern day this... In modern day television and storytelling with shows such as Breaking Bad and, and other American cable shows, there's this increasing tendency towards what they call horizontal storytelling, where the stories are much more interconnected, the characters are much richer and deeper. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep some of that horizontal storytelling simply because in present day, the means of delivery, the means of accessing stories, be it as ebooks, be it as audio dramas or as television, the means of accessing story has changed and people can engage in binge viewing or binge listening or binge reading. And therefore, there's a greater acceptance for much more intricate plot lines. We're trying to keep a little bit of that, but we're also trying to go back to something that I think is going a little bit by the wayside right now, which is just plain old adventure where you have a villain that you need to conquer in each episode. Um, some of them sooner, some of them later. Um, in the first season, one of the major characters is going to be introduced much earlier. One of the major villains, in fact, is going to be introduced much, much earlier than in the, um, not much, but somewhat earlier than in the German versions. Um, in season two, I'm introducing, I'm currently working on this next season, episodes seven to 12, and I'm trying to introduce some of our heroes a little bit earlier than they came in the German originals. But some of the other characters you've mentioned, they're going to be a little bit further down the line. We're going to try to let this develop organically. So one of the characters you mentioned, I'm not going to say who, will be coming pretty soon. One of them is planned for later on. What else do you have planned? I'm currently working on a concept that I would like to pitch to Bastai. Uh, we've already talked about it during a lunch recently in December. And um, I would like to start working on a, on a crime show, on a sort of a crime ebook series based on experiences I've had living in Los Angeles and working as a journalist for many years. I'd like to write the story of a, of a cop who is based on a good friend of mine who is battling the Mexican drug cartels. And I can say that it would be as violent and brutal, if not more so, than the most disturbing horror shows you've ever heard, um, but that it would take place in the real world. If you got to write some other franchise fiction, what would you want to do next? You know, off, on the top of my head, I'd have to say I'm really not sure. Um, I'm a big fan of the Walking Dead comics by Robert Kirkman, and I enjoy the TV, show, TV series as well. But I feel it's so well served by Kirkman and his team, uh, there's nothing I could contribute. The same goes for most of the franchises that I enjoy. Um, Star Wars is in great hands with J.J. Abrams, and I'm not such a big believer in the extended universe. I've always preferred the movies to novelizations or to other, to even to the comics, even though some of the Star Wars comics are quite great. Um, you know, I think Hellblazer would probably be it. I'm a huge fan of Hellblazer. Uh, Jamie Delano is, is a huge inspiration to me. Um, I, I think I could get be, get on get on board with having to do something with Hellblazer, but uh, you know that that's would never be up to me. If we have a scale with John Constantine on one end and James Bond on the other, where does John Sinclair fit? I'm trying to bring, you know, John Constantine is a, is sort of a, a good example. I've been, you know, I've been reading a lot and uh, and 
reading a lot of Hellblazer comics again recently in preparation. And uh, what I really like with Constantine, what I really like with Hellblazer is the the constant breaks within the character. The character has real depth and real darkness. And that's something that the original John Sinclair character never had in the 70s. He was always a very heroic, very shining sort of knight in shining armor character. And I think the way to modernize it, the way to reboot this for modern audiences is to make the character darker, more broken, more heartbroken, and more relatable. And that's what I'm trying to do. At the same time, there are certain things I don't want to compromise. John Sinclair is always going to be a stand-up guy. He's never going to be somebody who betrays his friends. He's never going to be vicious. He's never sadistic. He's always going to be a heroic character. But I'm really trying to give him much more of much more nuances, much more shades. In our version, he is an Afghanistan veteran who lost an entire platoon to supernatural forces and is haunted by the guilt that he hasn't been able to save his men. And he really suffers from severe post-traumatic stress disorder um, and is quite torn apart at the seams. And I'm always trying to see how far can I stretch the character? How far can I expose him to psychological pressure um, before he breaks? And I'm really trying to put him in a much, in, in sort of the sto- style of storytelling that we've seen in Hellblazer, that we've seen in, in Al Moore's Run of Swamp Thing, for example. Um, while still tra- staying true a little bit to the idea that he's not going to be a villain. He's not going to be an anti-hero. He's a broken hero. Heaven or hell? Yeah, I'm not a fan of either. Um, hell is our own making. Hell is our own hearts. And that's very real. Heaven, that's what we aim for. That's that nirvana we're trying to reach. That's where I'd rather be, obviously. Truth or beauty? Truth, always truth. Gabriel Conroy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Ed. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Starburst Radio, the greatest radio show in the universe. Every Wednesday, 9pm till 11pm. Exclusive to Fab Radio International. So, uh, today, I'm going to be talking to you about a book, uh, which I'm trying not to already start getting overexcited about, uh, called The First 15 Lives of of Harry August. Uh, It's by an author called Claire North. Um, It's published by Orbit, and slightly kind of removed from reviewing this, I really like Orbit as as a publishing company, and they're very interesting to follow on Facebook, so I'd very much recommend giving them a like. Um, They don't spam too much, and they're good. Um, This book is a story of the first 15 lives of Harry August, funnily enough. Um, it, It does more, but in a technical term, it's exactly what it says on the tin. Um, basically, um, it is the story of a man called Harry August, um, who is born, um, in a railway station. His mother dies... Um, yeah, so Anne, uh, uh, Al is giving me the, the, the big dramatic eyes. Yeah, um, his mother dies in childbirth um, and is on her own. So they have no idea who this little boy is, but somehow they connect him back to um, the area his his mother was from. So he gets, he gets sent there. Um, he's adopted by a family. Um, he grows up. Uh, he is involved in the Second World War. His dad was a gardener on a big estate, so he then gardens the big estate when he gets back from the war. He gets married, doesn't have any children, uh, lives a very mundane life, dies, and then wakes up again in a train station in the middle of Yorkshire and has to do life all over again. Um, it's really really interesting because it's not a Groundhog Day book he doesn't spend his time going through life and doing things better than he did them before and being like oh well I like this but it would be nice if I had more money um his I mean to be honest his his second life um he is a little boy trying to tell people that he's lived before um and it's 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 really really awesome but it's also while it is a story about the first 15 lives of Harry August the first 15 lives of Harry August are actually part of, a, of another story. Um, 
I normally find the first page of a book really difficult, but just because of the fact that it's a new writer, new, well, not necessarily a new writer, but it's a new voice, it's a new story. Um, the first page, the, the first chapter, sorry, of Harry August is one page long, um, and it, it goes thusly. The second cataclysm began in my 11th life, in 1996. I was dying my usual death, slipping away in a warm morphine haze, which she interrupted like an ice cube down my spine. She was seven, I was 78. She had straight blonde hair worn in a long pigtail down her back. I had bright white hair, or at least the remnants of the same. I wore a hospital gown designed for sterile humility. She, bright blue school uniform and felt cap. She perched on the side of my bed, her feet dangling off it, and peered into my eyes. She examined the heart monitor plugged into my chest, observed where I disconnected the alarm, felt for my pulse, and said, I nearly missed you, Dr. August. Her German was Berlin High but she could have addressed me in any language of the world and still passed for respectable. She scratched at the back of her left leg where her white knee-length socks had begun to itch from the rain outside. While scratching, she said, I need to send a message back through time, if time can be said to be important here. As you're conveniently dying, I, asked you to, I ask you to relate it to the clubs of your origin as it has been passed down to me. I tried to speak, but the words tumbled together on my tongue and I said nothing. The world is ending, she said. The message has come down from child to adult, child to adult, passed back down the generations from a thousand years forward in time. The world is ending and we cannot prevent it. So now it's up to you. I found that Thai was the only language which wanted to pass my lips in any coherent form, and the only word which I seemed capable of forming was why. Not, I hastened to add, why was the world ending? Why did it matter? She smiled and understood my meaning without needing it to be said. She leaned in close and murmured in my ear, the world is ending as it always must. But the end of the world is getting faster. That was the beginning of the end. Yeah, that is the first page of that book. Um, Ed has leaned forward. <laughs> that that does. Um, I'm a big fan of sapphire and steel and that sort of reality bending. Ooh. Yeah, it's it's in that one. Considering it is that makes it now sound like it's going to be a stop the end of the world story. It's still the story of the first 15 lives of Harry August, as he says on the first line. That was his 11th life. There's been, there's been 10 more. Um, but it's, it introduces so much. In this story, um, in Harry's third or fourth life, um, one, one of the things that's very interesting about the way that this story is written is it's not linear. We don't learn about his first life, then learn about his second life, then learn about his third life. A story is told, we just learn about it from bits that are relevant to that part of the story. Um, so we'll go from fourth life to third third life to seventh life. Really brilliantly written because you're never confused by it. Sometimes I might have been like, "Have we met this guy yet? Is this a point where we know this guy?" Um, but that was it was a tiny question that never actually interrupted how I was following the story. Um, but there is a bit in one of Harry's lives where someone is talking to him because um, they've discovered that he knows certain things he shouldn't know about what's coming up in time they're trying to question him to get more information to maybe further themselves and, and their business um but they mentioned something called the chronos club and harry has no idea what they're talking about but in one of his lives things go a little bit sour and so he risks it you know what he's like you, you know I'm, I'm hearing this thing about this chronos club maybe it exists and he writes a letter to be published in a newspaper that simply says a date and a place in the future and it is the start of the Vietnam War. And then he leaves a location and a woman turns up and it's like, well, you've put us in rather a pickle. And that's how we find out about the Kronos Club. And the Kronos Club is made up of people like Harry who are born, live their life. But when they die, for, in whatever way, find themselves back at the beginning of their life again. And it's, re it's a really interesting concept of this idea of an organisation that spans across time. And so you automatically, as a reader, you're going, yeah, but also, like, you could do this and you could make this better. And why, like, the obvious, like, why don't you kill Hitler? And um, he's trying to talk to them about that, the fact that if there's more of them, do they not have a responsibility? And the whole point is she's like, there's so, there's too many consequences. There's no way of calculating what the outcome of these things would be. And ultimately, it's like, so we just can't be bothered is kind of the thing that you get out of it. Um, but she, basically, certain things are always going to happen. Um, certain teams will always win certain sporting events. Certain, um, certain people will always be elected into power. Certain people will always be assassinated and wars will always start and they will always, they will always go the way that they go. 
because it is simply too much hassle to know what would happen if you changed that. There's no possible way of knowing, so they stop trying. And it's so interesting. And they can trace it back to, like, Babylon. Because similar to what we've seen then, a young girl has learned something when she's an old lady, died, been born again, and found an old person who is the same as her, who can take it back at, like, 90 years, who will be able to pass it back 90 years. And it's it's really interesting, really, really awesome. And it sounds like it would be hard to follow because of the not-linear nature, but it is not. It's so easy to follow. Cool. Uh, but, sounds, but still challenging as well. Sounds really intriguing and sounds like I'm really... Because I, I, I'm fascinated by that kind of time travel... Mm-hmm style of story especially when it you know, when you add a conspiracy to it and that yep. sort of thing I, I keep raging about the movie about time because it's like it's such a waste of an opportunity <laughs> um, but yes so who's it by and where's it on what's so it on? it's the first 15 lives of harry august by claire north it's published by orbit so it's available everywhere the world 24 hours a day this is Fat Radio International so we seem to have been talking about alternate reality which is kind of a massive accident. Wonderful. It's funny how there's it's almost, almost like we plan this stuff. <laughs> almost, yeah. Almost like we plan this stuff. So yes, uh, I mean, the thing about the, the thrilling adventures of Lovelace and Babbage is that you keep going back, and uh, as a science nerd, I keep going. Wouldn't it be nice if? And it's full of. Wouldn't it be nice if? But it also takes you know it takes so many liberties with history, and at the same time, saying this ridiculous thing actually did happen. All these other ridiculous <laughs> things didn't happen, but this completely insane, you know, you know, thing that you think happened, you think is just a gag. No, actually, really happened. It's full of primary sources as well. Oh, right. amazing! So, not primary sources, secondary sources. Print copies of yeah. primary sources. Obviously, they, they, there's but it's in a, there's like actual kind of referenced material and stuff. The, there's not a, a analytical engine card in the back of every book. That would be insane. Uh, oh, the, there's not a replica of one either. But yes, so the 15 Lives of Harry August is up for a Clark Award. Yes, it is. I'm very excited and very happy because it definitely deserves it. Um, I think it's it's one of those things where I'm the sort of person where the last 100 pages of a book, when I start the last 100 pages, I'm like, right, it's about to kick off. Things are about to, it's all about to happen. And kind of I was reading it, like this book, I was just like, oh, actually, the whole book is stuff's about to happen that's it it's all kind of getting to this this place and i have to say like at first i felt like it ended really quickly but actually that was that story like it's not it, that story has finished like yes i want to know more but that's not that story and it's yeah it's it's that's a good it's sign awesome that that's a good sign that you've been brought into a world and you don't want to leave the world the story's over but you just don't want to leave yeah uh, there's, it's a thing that many of the fantasy world suffer from. Uh, a lot of fantasy settings is that you know, the world is so well built that the author continues to write stories in that world, and it's mm. like, actually we've stayed too long now. Yeah, I, that kind of I think mo- both of them as well kind of are a bit. They play into kind of modern times, um, which because obviously like we are we, we we're currently in a period that hopefully won't go anywhere where it is okay to be a nerd and it is okay to be geeky and so things like Lovelace and Babbage like that's gonna kind of pe- more people are going to read that than say would have read it 15 years ago when it wasn't okay to be a geek um harry august really plays into kind of just modern thinking and parallels it's actually it's a hashtag now is hashtag harry august people go on twitter and leave kind of like sometimes it'll be something really profound um like it'll be just a message to themselves um in order to kind of like just genuinely look like, like heartache and things and the hashtag harry august and then some of them are literally like jaeger bombs are not your friend Hashtag Harry August. I really like that, though. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I do that. There's a various services on the internet that allow you to send yourself an email to the future. And <gasps> every once in a while, it's things like, do not do not forget this, this niece's birthday. Uh, <laughs> I, and also, I'll send myself things saying, Ed, you should have had this done by this time. Why haven't you? Yeah, why haven't you done this? And, you know, but I'll also, you know, I'll have 
a certain certain key points in my life, I've sent myself a note saying, "Please remember that this happened on this day," just as a just as a thing to you know keep me going. Mm. It's a really useful trick. It's also really weird to get an email from your younger self, <laughs> who, who tends to be telling me off. I notice. Is it deservedly? I'm just really really annoying. Well, then he knows you quite well, doesn't he? <laughs> I like one of the things with both of these as well is that they are both clearly set in... in, in, They are fantasy and that neither of these stories could happen. But there's a real real world quality to them. They don't feel... Like, Harry August does not feel like fantasy reading. Apart from the fact that this man is reborn every time he dies and he lives his life, like, again and again and again. It feels like actually quite a, a real story and, like, they're definitely real people. I'm, you can see them all. I really want to go to the Clark Awards ceremony. <gasps> it's the 6th of May. It's the middle of the week. Uh, go with all the gifts is up as well. Mm. It's, it's in London. It's Foyle's bookstore. <coughs> uh, talking of fantasy reading, whilst we've been on air, I've checked the uh, party manifestos for the Conservatives, the <laughs> Labour, the Lib Dem, and, the, and uh, taking one for the team, UKIP. Um, UKIP don't really talk about arts and culture at all, other than <laughs> and just very generally. Um talk about um, the BBC and some stuff with libraries and uh, ensuring that authors uh, will get paid for ebooks that are taken out that they've written um, uh, and then talk about making sure that your ISP will stop you from torrenting stuff mm. Yay! Um, the Lib Dems use almost identical language to the Green Party to basically say the copyright system is a mess and we need to have a look at that and have a conversation about how that can get sorted out for modern digital era. Uh, it took me two reads of the Labour Party manifesto to even find the bit about arts and culture, uh, which is all about young people having free access to museums. Yay. It, it, it's um, all these young people are creating all these amazing books and, and cultural... No, 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 no it's mostly people in their 30s, actually. Um, yes, uh, and the SNP, uh, again, mentions BBC Scotland and devolving decisions and more money to them. It's interesting how like sometimes you're reading something and it plays into the time that you're in. So like this week I've been reading Wool by Hugh Howey and one of the lines that I really loved in it was Lucas glanced towards Bernard and the Sheriff. I'm sure they'll figure out a way to let me vote, he told his mother. Well, that's nice. I like to think I raised you proper. <laughs> Lovely. I was like, ooh, it's like they knew I was reading it now. And quite interesting from an American author as well. Mm-hmm. Um so we are heading towards the end of the show so here is a quick reminder if you are listening to us on iTunes please comment, please subscribe um, if you're not, please go on to the Starburst Magazine website dig us out on podcasts uh, and then please you know, comment and subscribe on on the iTunes it really does help us out we're on social media, Radio Bookworm on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr and the rest you can find us on Mixcloud as well um, and I think we're heading out the door so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me. Those hands are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hands. You ask for it. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Rebecca Derrick. Produced by A.L. Johnson.